1 Samuel as we continue our series through this book. And we're today looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it's printed in your bulletin that we are going to do all of chapter 15, but we're actually going to just be looking at verse 1 through verse 23. You'll remember what's happening in the story of 1 Samuel up until this point, that Israel demanded a king like all of the nations, and God gave them a king, King Saul, who reluctantly took the the keys of power. And he started off strong. It seemed like he could be a, a faithful king of Israel. But then it began to be clear that he was not a king who had a a soft heart towards the Lord, Uh, that we began to see a pattern of failure as he offered an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13. Uh, We saw his rash vow in chapter 14. And in my Bible, the English Standard Version, the, the heading that the translators provide for chapter 15 is the Lord rejects Saul. So this is this final rejection of Saul as being king. And we've been building up to this point with the, the, the rebellion, the disobedience, the failure to repent from King Saul. So again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'll be reading verse 1 through verse 23. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noticed what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. 
all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep that I in my ear and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to study and explore your word together. We know that your word has hard sayings. It has things that are often difficult for us to understand with our, our limited minds. And so, Father, as we 
explore what, what you reveal here. We pray for hearts and minds that are not sitting in judgment over your word, but we pray for hearts and minds that are sitting under your word, that we would submit to your word, receive your word, and that we would see your goodness and the hope and peace that you offer us through scripture today. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as you think of the, the history of seemingly small mistakes with very massive, tragic outcomes, you could think of the, the Challenger space shuttle disaster in 1986. Maybe some of you remember that from the time that there was this explosion of the space shuttle which resulted in the death of seven crew members. And it was caused by the failure of an O-ring seal in its solid rocket booster. And it was due to a very small mistake in judgment regarding the launch temperature. Um, so again, very small mistake led to an explosion, to the loss of life. That it, in reality, wasn't a, a small mistake, but it was a catastrophic mistake. And that's what we see here in our text from Saul. That as he was obeying the, the commands of the Lord, that, that he fell short of what God had told him to do. That it, it seems like a, a small action from his perspective, but it was like the, the Challenger space shuttle exploding, that his kingship exploded as it was continuing to, to take off, as it were. And so that's what we're going to explore today, this catastrophic failure of Saul. And we're going to look at this text today under three headings, uh, God's command, God's regret, and then God's priority. And so let's start with the first heading, God's command. And you see this command in verse 3, when Samuel comes to Saul, bringing the word of the Lord to him, and he tells Saul to go and to devote to destruction all of the Amalekites. This is called harem warfare from the Hebrew. It's putting it under a ban, this ban of complete and utter destruction. And you see how it's defined for us further in verse 3. He says, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So complete and utter destruction. And you see how God gives the his rationale for this ban, this complete destruction for the Amalekites in verse 2. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. And so this is referring to 
to something that you re can read about back in the book of Exodus. And I'd actually encourage you to turn with me in your, your Bible back to Exodus chapter 17. Remember how Israel had been in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were brought out through the hand of Moses. They crossed through the Red Sea. The, the forces of the Egyptians were destroyed in the Red Sea as the waters came back over them. And they received water from the rock at the beginning of Exodus 17. And then you see in verse 8 of Exodus 17 that they were attacked by the forces of the Amalekites, this nomadic tribe that lived in the Sinai Desert in southern Israel, as we see in our text here. And so Israel has its first battle after coming out of bondage and, and slavery. And you remember that this was the battle where Moses raised his arm, and as long as he held his arm up, they would prevail in their battle over the Amalekites. And when he lowered his arm, they would begin to lose the battle. And so they held his arm up as they fought. But then look at what it says in verse 14, after they defeated the Amalekites. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the, on the name and called the name of it, "The Lord is my banner," saying, "A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation." And you see this same word being affirmed in Deuteronomy 25 verses 17 to 19 that that God promise this future destruction on Amalek, future judgment. And so it was written in Scripture, and then that, that promise of future destruction and judgment set for hundreds of years as Israel went into the promised land through Joshua, through the period of the judges. And so what we see here is, is God coming through the, the prophet Samuel to Saul, saying that it is time for the prophetic judgment of Exodus chapter 17 to be brought to bear. It's, it's time for this complete judgment and destruction of the Amalekites to take place. But of course, as readers today, as, as New Testament believers, this is hard to read. This is hard to wrap our minds around. And especially as we consider the, the love and the mercy of God, the, the picture of God that we get throughout scriptures, that how could a loving and merciful God command this complete annihilation of the Amalekites? And that's one reason that we preach through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, section by section, um, because it's important that we discuss these hard aspects of Scripture together. Because when people read through the Bible, they come across these things, and unless we talk about it together in worship, that it, people say, well, I'm not sure if I can even understand the Bible or even misunderstand the, the goodness of God. And so to help understand what's going on here, 
and how this is not an immoral command of God, I want to offer you three propositions. And so here's, here's the first proposition to help us understand this, and it's that God is the ultimate standard of right and wrong. That God is the ultimate standard of right and wrong. That sometimes we can look at what God does and we say, does God correspond to some sort of external standard of goodness and righteousness? And so we say, here's goodness and righteousness. Does God line up to what goodness and righteousness should be? But the problem is that God himself is the standard of righteousness and truth. That, that he is what defines what is right and true in and of himself. And so some will say, well, I, I will reject the God of the Bible because of actions that I view as immoral. And I want to believe that there is no God. But the problem is, is that if you deny the existence of God, if we come from nothing, if we're the descendants only of bacteria, and we, be, we come from nothing, we return to nothing, that there's no ultimate meaning or purpose, then we could say, on what basis do we call anything right or wrong apart from God? So that's the, the first proposition, that God is the ultimate standard of right and wrong. But then here's the, the second proposition to help us understand this command. It's that we want a God who stands against evil and injustice in the world that we see from the Amalekites that it was evil for them to oppose God's people as they were coming up out of slavery and out of bondage. We, we see even later, as we'll see next week, when, when Samuel confronts Agag and he faces the judgment of God, he says that I'm going to do to you what you have done to others, that there was child sacrifice, there was idolatry, there was great evil among the Amalekites that had continued to, to go unchecked. And so we see then evil and injustice in the world, and maybe you have experienced evil and injustice, and we begin to wonder, God, where are you? Do you care about evil and injustice? Will you let it go on unchecked in the world? And that's one of the great calls in the Scripture that says, How long, O Lord, when will you put an end to wickedness? When will you vindicate what is right and true? That we long for that. And that God has a perfect, ultimate plan to put an end to all evil and to all injustice. And that's what you see at the very end of the storyline of the Bible. When you read the book of Revelation and you see the final judgment that God brings on the world. The, the destruction of the world in a fire of judgment. That it's this putting an end to all evil, all that is wrong, to establish the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no tears, no sadness, no pain in the world. That that's the ultimate end, the final judgment, destruction of all that is evil. But that at various points in history, God has allowed the the complete terrifying reality of final judgment to crash into human experience. And one of the reasons that he has done that, I believe, is to show us that he is not absent, that he is not unconcerned, that he will ultimately deal with sin in the world. And so you could think of examples of this 
crashing in of the reality of final judgment. Think of the flood at the time of Noah. That sometimes we can sanitize the flood. We see children's Bibles and all the animals going on to the ark. But if you think about it, the the flood is, is just as terrifying as this judgment that we see here against the Amalekites. That man, woman, child, animal, everyone who is not in the ark face the judgment of God, the righteous, holy judgment. Or consider Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities that face the judgment of God, fire and brimstone coming from heaven, this reality of final judgment. Or the the ten plagues on Egypt, especially the tenth plague and the the death of the firstborn. Or the destruction of the Canaanites, or we, we see here the destruction of the Amalekites, or the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, these terrifying moments where this final reality is, is put on display. So that's our second proposition, that we want a God who stands against evil and injustice. But then here's the, the third proposition that can help us understand what's going on here in this text, that, that God alone has authority to command anything like what we see in this text. That if a, if a mere, mere human purpose to go and to destroy a people, that that would be sinful genocide, that we as mere humans do not have the authority in and of ourselves, that it would be wrong. But for God, when he ordains the death of someone, God is not a murderer, that in a sense, Every time anyone dies, it's, it's ordained by the sovereign purposes of God that because he understands all ends. He, he's perfectly good. He knows all. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord that leaving that ultimate vengeance, the ultimate justice to God, not something that we take into our own hands based on our own authority. And so then as we think about this, is there any practical application from this command for us today? Well, one is we could think of the, the call to defeat sin, the that, that the, the defeat of sin in our life is, you know, complete annihilation. Of, uh, but, but also, we can think of an application for those who have suffered. For those who have suffered violence or suffered abuse. You say, does God care? Will God deal with evil in the world? And we see here that God is not unconcerned, that he will vindicate what is right. Or for those who have perpetrated violence, for those who are abusers, who have hurt the weak and the vulnerable, that there is a warning here that God may seem to be silent, but that he will defend the rights of the vulnerable, of those who are weak. And that's why one commentary said that rulers and nations who read this passage should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of his hand. So there's warning, and there's also comfort for us here. So that's our first heading then today, God's command. But now let's turn to our second 
major heading. We've looked at the command, and now let's look at God's regret. So we've looked at God's command, now God's regret. Because you see in verse 4 how Saul begins off in obedience. He, he musters an army. He goes to, to fight against the Amalekites. Uh, they begin to, to prevail in the battle. And there's that note that he sends the, the Kenites away. Uh, they were related to uh, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, another nomadic people in the Sinai desert who had helped Israel. And so he says, leave while you still can before judgment comes, and they, they leave. But they get to the place of almost completing the word of the Lord, and they pounce on the spoil, they take the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen for themselves. Um, Saul keeps Agag, the king of the Amalekites, again, maybe as a kind of trophy of, of war and of defeat. And so then look at how, how the Lord responds to this, this incomplete obedience in verse 10. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so you see this, this shocking statement of God that he says, I regret making Saul king. How can God have regret? Or in the, the older King James translation, it says that he repenteth. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. How can God have regrets or repentance as one who knows the beginning from the end, who is sovereign in all of his purposes? Does he, does he make mistakes? Does he fail to take everything into account? And there's actually a theology called open theism that says that, that God is in the roller coaster of time, that he doesn't really know the future, that he's surprised by events, that he somehow makes mistakes, that he has true regrets because he couldn't foresee all that would take place. But then look at something very amazing in this passage. So we see it stated in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. But then look at verse 29, and we'll look at this more next week, but, but look down at verse 29 in the same chapter. That Samuel is speaking about the Lord, and he said that, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. And so you say, well, wait a second. In the very same chapter, we see it saying that God had regret. And then we also see it saying that God does not have regret. That he is not a man that he has regret. And so either this is just a, a blatant contradiction in the Bible. Or God is telling us something amazing about himself. And of course, it's the latter, not the former, that, that he's telling us something incredible about his character, the showing this, this tension, but not a contradiction, this, this paradox, but not a contradiction, that we can affirm truly what it says in verse 29, that God does not have 
regrets. It's what he says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Or James 1.17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That in that sense, we could say that this is ascribing the language of human emotion to God that we can understand, that God in himself knows the end from the beginning. He is unchanging in his purposes, that Saul wasn't God's David wasn't God's plan B, but it was his plan A, that God only has plan A. His, his purposes are always accomplished, that he has no regret in the way that human beings have regret. And so we can affirm the truth of verse 29. God does not have regret. But then we can also simultaneously affirm the truth of verse 11, when God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. It's the same thing that God says in Genesis 6:6 6, 6, before the flood that I regret that I have made man on the earth that that we see this regret of God and what it's speaking to is is that God is not unmoved by the reality of human sin and rejection that he is grieved by the sin of Saul that that he is grieved by by human brokenness that what we see in the world. And that's why in his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, it is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves Yahweh. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Verse 11 does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over a lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over a lack of obedience. And so we need to remember that when we are struggling with sin, when we are walking away from God, that it grieves the heart of God, that we can grieve the Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. That our sin, your sin, my sin, grieves the Lord. That he's not some sort of unmoved mover who is set apart from human experience. He's, we're not deists who think that God is disconnected from our life, but, but that he is deeply tied up in the events of your life and my life, that he is grieved by what he sees in the world. So that's our, our second heading today. So we've seen God's command. We see God's regret and now finally, let's look at our third and heading, uh, God's priority. So again, God's command, God's regret, God's priority. 
And you can see how we, we, the passage unfolds, and it'll culminate in God's priority in verse 22. But look at how we get there. So, so start with looking with your Bible with me at verse 13. It says that Samuel came to Saul, and then again, Saul comes out to meet Samuel and says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And it's one of those things that if you have to tell other people that you've done the right thing, then it's maybe a sign that you haven't done the right thing, that, that he, uh, he's, he's having to, to state it, uh, but his deeds can't answer for themselves. And then I, I love how Samuel responds in verse 14. And Samuel asks a question. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So he's saying, well, wait a second. I, I see some sheep over there. I see some oxen over there. Where did those come from? Can you tell me? And then in, in verse 15, immediately Saul goes into his defensive mode. He says, they, not me, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep. It wasn't me, it was the people. And of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And so really what he's saying is, we're still in process. That, that our ult- ultimately we're going to obey, but we took the backs of the sheep and oxen so that we could later offer them as a sacrifice to God. Uh, that they will be devoted to destruction, but actually this, this wasn't an act of disobedience, that this was actually an act of reverence and obedience to God to be able to offer these as a sacrifice. But then look at how in verse 16, you can sense that, that Samuel interrupts Saul because he says, stop. And so interrupting the king himself in the middle of his speech, he says, stop. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Then look at how the Lord speaks through Samuel in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? That part of his disobedience wasn't in a sense, puffing himself too high, but it was seeing himself as too low. You, that you, you may see yourself as little, and, but you were you are appointed as king, that you have responsibility. And the Lord anointed you over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil? In the sight of the Lord. Why did you fall into the same sin as Achan when Jericho was destroyed back in Judges, or back in the book of Joshua, that he took the spoil from Jericho and brought judgment on the people? He says, You have committed the same sin, King Saul. And then we finally arrive at God's priority. So look now with me down at verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, 
to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. That this becomes almost a, a creed in ancient Israel, this, this priority of God. And it's reiterated in Psalm 40, verse 6, where it says that in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Or Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Or Jesus in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That though God commands ceremonial religious observance, that that is always subservient to obedience to his moral law, that to obedience to the Lord. But we can be a lot like Saul here in our text, that we can prioritize religious observance over true obedience to God, that we give money to the church while failing to love our neighbor, that we can serve in the church while failing to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we can read our Bible faithfully while being unkind to our friends and our, our family. And I've had this before where people will call me at Hope Church and they'll say, hey, I have a, a child that I would like baptized. And then I'll, I'll meet with them and, and they don't go to church. They don't have active, neither one of the parents believes in in the Lord or is following the Lord. And I'll say, well, why do you want your, your child baptized? And they'll say, well, I was baptized, and, and I think that it's a, just a really nice thing, and since I was baptized, I would love to have my child baptized. And what I'll tell them in those conversations is it's, it's not that baptism is unimportant. Uh, and we believe in applying the, the covenant sign of baptism to believers when they profess faith and to their children uh, but, I, but I said that if, you, if your child is baptized and you're not in church with them where they're hearing the gospel, if you're not repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, that, that just an outward sign will do no spiritual good. Um, and so the, the call then is, is for you to, to repent, to trust in Jesus, to, to follow him, and then, yes, receive the sign as a confirmation uh, but, but that what your child needs, first and foremost, is, is your heart to the Lord, not some sort of outward ceremony. And that's exactly what we see here, that it's, it's not the outward ceremony, but it's following the Lord. It's repentance. It's, it's faith. It's not outward acts. But then as we wrap up pulling all of this together, I personally am afraid of a passage like this, that what I kept thinking about as I studied this over the week is, is where could I be a, a pastor like Saul? Where would I go on a mission from the Lord and fall just short and then have a hard heart towards the Lord? And I think that's how all of us sh should read this passage, to not assume that we could never be in the position of Saul, but to, to come with, with humble hearts saying, Lord, you've sent me on a mission. Lord, what does it look like to follow you truly, to, to respond to you in repentance and in faith? Because 
we know that we've all failed to obey the Lord perfectly, that it, it says that he does, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of, of rams. But daily we fall short of the, the glory of God in different ways. And so when we consider the, the judgment of God, that, that we here would deserve the judgment of God just as much as the Amalekites, that if the, the reality a final judgment were to break into the world today, apart from Jesus, we would be in no better condition. And that's where we find the hope that is offered to us in Jesus, that Jesus comes as the one who perfectly obeys God, that he is the only one who had the, the priority of God perfectly and aligned, obedience over sacrifice, living completely and utterly to the Lord. And Jesus, then, is the one who, who took God's judgment in our place. Because remember, I said that at, at various moments, the reality of final judgment, this terrifying reality, has broken into the experience of life. But the ultimate moment of the breaking in of the reality of final judgment was Jesus hanging on the cross. That sometimes people will say, well, we see the, the, the judgment of God in the Old Testament, like in this text, but we see the God of love and mercy in the New Testament. But the most terrifying act of judgment in human history is the Son of God taking the wrath of God against sin on himself so that we could be forgiven, taking final judgment on himself. And so if we find ourselves in the, the place of the Amalekites or the place of Saul, that that the call is always then to repent, to say, Lord, I've, I've not perfectly obeyed, but I look to Jesus, the one who has obeyed in my place, and I find all my hope and comfort in him alone. And this meal shows us that comfort, that we see here the reality of final judgment, that his blood was shed, that his his body was broken for us, taking God's wrath. But then what he gives us is hope and, and peace, that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies so that our cup can, can overflow to him. Now, if you're here and you've never repented and, and trusted in Jesus, we're, we're glad that you're here, but we would ask that you not take this, that it would be a form of hypocrisy, that it would do no spiritual good for you. Again, God desires obedience, not sacrifice, that God doesn't want just an outward observance of a ceremony without the inner reality of repentance and faith in Jesus. Um, and so again, you could, we encourage you to stay seated, um, to ask questions. We'd love to talk with you more. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Presbyterian Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church, but to be one who is trusting in Jesus, his perfect obedience and sacrificial death, who has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, not bound by the action of a church from, from taking this meal, but one that is, is resting on Jesus and can profess the faith that we hold together. So let's do that using the words of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you're on page 9. So please read with me. 
this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward whenever you're ready. Um, Jonathan and I will be here. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. We have gluten-free. Um, Ernie will be bringing this around. If mobility is an issue, feel free to re raise your hand, and Ernie will bring this to you. And then when we come back to your, your chair, we'll take it together at the end. Again, you can come down the, the middle this way. It's very loud. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you that though we fail in our obedience daily, um, though we can look a lot more like Saul, uh, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience, and his ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. Um, Lord, we, we pray that today you would give us hearts that, that trust you, to trust your goodness, uh, to know that you are engaged with us, that you're not disconnected, that, that, that you are grieved by human sin and rebellion. And so, Father, we, we pray for hearts of repentance and faith and that you would use this meal um, and not as an empty religious ceremony, but as a gift to to strengthen the faith that we hold in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. So now please stand with us and we'll sing our final song, How Firm a Foundation. <laughs>